Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So we are here today to talk about hope. This is our second week of the Hope series in this book. We are studying the book of Ruth throughout this whole series. And when we talk about hope, I think it's important right up front that we're clear and we sort of define what we're talking about. Because there's verb hope and there's noun hope. Now, I hope you remember verbs and nouns back from middle school. The first service kind of struggled. Remember, verbs are words of action. Good, and nouns are... Or person, place, thing, or idea. Good. All of your grade school teachers are crying just a little bit inside right now. But you kind of remember, so that's good. So, but verb hope is, funny enough, it's actually kind of passive. Because verb hope is when you kind of, you're wishing that something might happen. You're wanting or yearning, aspiring, longing for it. But verb hope is very distant. It's removed. It's something that's out there that might happen someday, kind of in an inspirational way. But noun hope is specific and concrete. It's reliance, it's promise, it's confidence, it's belief. And that's the kind of hope that we're talking about. But there's a relationship here that exists because we're going to have to take some action in order to find our hope. We're going to have to put in some verb hope if we want to find some noun hope. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is how to begin to step into hope. See, the, the book of Ruth itself is in four chapters, and it's just this beautiful piece of literature. I would encourage you to read the whole book. Read it many, many times. You can read the whole book of Ruth in probably less than 10 minutes. And you'll see as you go through it that the book is really centered around four verbs. And if you can remember that dominant action word of each chapter, if you can walk forward in that, kind of walk out here with those four action words even memorized, then we will have a great grasp of what was happening in the book of Ruth. Now, by way of background, it's important that we understand the world that Ruth was written into because it in informs the entire story. For first of all, nationally speaking, we talked about this last week, the book of Ruth happens at the same time as the book of Judges, which is a different book in the Bible. And in Judges, it tells the history of God's people, and it was a very, very difficult era. There was no king. There was no central government. There was actually long periods of lawlessness, and then occasionally a judge would kind of arise and would set things right. That's how the book gets its name. But overall, this was a difficult time to be alive in the history of the judges. The text literally says in the days, you know, when people kind of did whatever they wanted. And all parents know this is not a good thing, right? 
Everyone should not be able to do whatever they want. So there was, no, there was no law, there was no structure. Now, Ruth isn't about the nation. It's actually about one specific family. So there was a man named Elimelech. Say that. Elimelech. But you have to spit at the end. There has to be airborne particles, okay? Elimelech, okay? Elimelech is a very strong name. It means, my God is king. So he was named in a moment of triumph, this great, great name, Elimelech. He was married to a woman named Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. So I don't know if anyone else in here would agree. If you are a man and your wife is literally named pleasant, this is a good thing, right? Happy wife, happy life, right? So he has a pleasant wife. So his God was king and he has a pleasant wife. However, his life had clearly gone off the rails because he and his family had relocated out of Israel, and he had named his sons Malon and Kilion. I know this sounds like Star Trek, but the the details matter, and that's why the names are in there, because Malon means sickness, and Kilion means wasting away. So my God is king named his sons basically sick and dying. It's not a good situation. And they moved out of Israel. They moved to Moab. It's incredibly important to understand moving to Moab is not like going to the New World to seek hope, okay? They weren't going through Ellis Island. They weren't leaving a difficult country and trying to go somewhere, you know, with new hope and, and new opportunities. You know, you can make your own wall joke right here. This is where it fits, okay? It's not like that. In fact, Moab was a very antagonistic nation to Israel. See, Moab was, as a nation, had a very sordid and disgusting history for how it even started. What happened was there was a man named Lot. He was Abraham's nephew. You've probably heard of Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. Lot was his nephew. Lot and his family made a series of bad decisions that resulted in Lot and his two daughters living alone. Living very, very alone. His wife was dead. There was no one else even around. So the daughters became very concerned. They said, listen, there are no other men here. When our father is dead, there's no one to protect us. We will have no family, and our family line will end, which is one of the most shameful things that can happen in an ancient culture, that your family line ends. And so the two daughters said, there are no other men around here. We might even be the only three left living on earth, because they had left kind of a, kind of a cataclysmic event. So both daughters said, there's only one thing for us to do. We're going to have to have children the only way we possibly can. So they got their father drunk, and each of them got pregnant. And so the older daughter, her son, was named Moab, which literally means from father. And the other son was named Benami, which means these are my father's people. Okay? So they were very, this is, this is what had happened. And so it was, it was such a, a disgusting idea to the nation of Israel that Moses actually said before he died in one of his speeches that no Moabite or Ammonite, those are the two brothers, or any of their uh, cousins, or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. They can never enter God's assembly even to the 10th generation. So the Moabites were a cursed people with a disgusting past. And Elimelech said... I'm going to leave Bethlehem, yes, that same Bethlehem, and I'm going to go live there with those people. And soon after, Elimelech dies, so does Malon, so does Kilion. So you have Naomi, 
who moved there, and the two women who had married in, one woman named Orpah and one woman named Ruth. And you had these three women, and the story centers around two of them, Ruth and Naomi. And in the first chapter, the one word that recurs over and over and over more than any other word is the word return. It's there six different times. Because Naomi, who was always kind of the, the brains behind everything that happens for the rest of the book, she probably wasn't the brains behind moving to Moab, I'm guessing. After that, when she's kind of running the show, she says she knows that things are going better back home. Naomi heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now, Naomi has to deal with this problem that she has these two women with her that are not her daughters. So she tries to be gracious, and she says to them that, you know, you don't need to stay with me. Return home, my daughters, back to Moab. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? We're going to get to that. She says to them, return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. But Ruth says no. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back, same word, turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So for Naomi and Ruth, as they began to step into their own hope, the first step that they took was to return. They had gone so far out and so far away from God's plan, so far away from his provision, away from his people, that they were all alone. They said, the first thing that we have to do is return back to God. This is a common theme in the Old Testament. All of the prophets who would you know, speak truth to the nation of Israel, they said this over and over and over. You can see this exact phrase in the writings of Isaiah and Joel and Nehemiah, Haggai, Amos, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Malachi. I and mean, he said it over and over and over if you want to begin to step into hope, the first thing you have to do is return to God. But this is an interesting thing to think about because how, how can Naomi and Ruth both return? They were from different places. It seems inconsistent. I believe that it's not, and here's why. The concept of returning is the same word as repentance. So return and repent are the exact same word. So here's the thing. It's true that Ruth had to return to somewhere that she had never been. And I think for a great many of us, we have to consider that same question. Are we willing to return to God even if you have never been before him? Because the scriptures teach clearly that all of us have sinned. All of us have broken the relationship between us and God. But all of us can be justified freely if we will return to him. So as you step into hope this morning, I don't know if for you it's, it's a return to what you know is right or if it's considering for the very first time the opportunity and the idea to be basing your life on the things of God, putting your hope in Jesus. Now this is not an easy step because the this step of faith requires humility. Humility is not easy to come by because we have to be willing to say, I've been doing it wrong. I've been going the wrong direction. It's going to change now, and I'm going to return back to God. 
But if we're going to step into hope, we have to be willing to make that decision. We have to be willing to humble ourselves and return to him. So we know from chapter 1 that Ruth and Naomi did in fact return to Israel. Food was growing again, which means that rain was coming again, and life started to improve. But that didn't automatically fix their situation. Because if you start to look at chapter 2, it's a different verb altogether. Here, the most important word is the word go. It's mentioned about six different times, eight different times, eight different ways, saying you need to go. You need to be active. You need to be in action. So here's what happened. Naomi knew the culture of the people. She had grown up and was, you know, Jewish, had left for a while, and then had repatriated. So she told Ruth, listen, in our country, here's how poor people like us eat. Farmers do not harvest their crops all the way to the end until every single thing is picked. The Old Testament says, and tradition had built upon it, you were supposed to leave a little bit behind, especially on the edges of your fields, for the poor to come and pick some grain for themselves. It was sort of a, a welfare-type system. Now, no one would pick it for them. No one would prepare it for them. But if they were willing to work, they could come and get just a little food. In fact, for most people, the tradition of the day was you'd be able to pick enough food for today. And that would be about it. So Naomi has explained this process to Ruth, and she says, Ruth responds and said, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Happened to end up in the field of Boaz. How could that be? And Boaz was good to her, and Ruth went and she worked, and she worked hard. In fact, the men were impressed by her work. Boaz noticed her work, noticed that she was a good worker and a hard worker, and he said, wow, she's doing good work. I want you to make sure that she does well today. In fact, give her a little extra. Give her water when we feed everyone who works here. And they noticed her labor, that she was willing to go. Because this is when stepping into hope starts to kind of take shape. Because if we are pining for hope or whining for hope, we're not actually doing anything to put hope into motion. And so Ruth, who thought she was going to be a wife and a mother for life, is now neither and is instead working the fields as an impoverished person. And it doesn't sound like a lot of hope, but her and Naomi were able to eat. She was able to provide for them for a whole harvest season because she was willing to go. Now in chapter 3, the author switches to a different word. He switches to the word that we translate as do. Now, go and do sound very similar, but you'll see, and he says it eight different times, to, to do. It's actually an extension because Ruth starts to do more. Because when she went, she started to go. It was kind of the minimum. Make sure we can eat today. But here, again, Naomi says, I know the culture. Let me explain to you how this works. We need... Boaz to look after us for life. And he is one of the people who's allowed to marry you, Ruth. So here is how this is going to work. It's now harvest time. They're mostly done picking. The men are going to be threshing the barley at the mill where they do this. And the men are going to sleep there on the ground. Now, why did the men sleep there on the ground? We don't totally know. There's a few popular theories. Uh, one theory is very straightforward that probably the people lived in town the fields were out of town. In fact, there's a lot of scriptures about marking fields and stuff, which really make us think that they probably lived in town and went out there to work. But 
now that all the crops have been gathered up, they are ripe for theft, right? It's probably already gathered up in baskets and anyone could just take off with it. So the men might have slept there for security reasons. They might have also slept there because they worked very long hours and that they wanted to be able to work immediately again when the sun came up because you have a, a narrow window in which you need to thresh this barley before it goes bad. Or some people think that the men would work and then after work they would, you know, sort of Netflix and chill and then they would have a lot of relaxation, all these men together with their barley and their barley products and their wheat products and then eventually they would just sleep on the ground until the next day when they would do it over again. For whatever reason, Naomi knew, hey, Boaz is going to be sleeping on the ground. So Ruth, here's what you're going to do. You're going to lay next to him. Here's what you're going to do next. Oh, make sure, by the way, that you smell great. Put on some perfume. It's in the text, chapter 3, okay? Because it's going to get dark. He's not going to be able to see you, but I just want him to smell you, okay? And here's what you're going to do next. You're going to uncover his feet. Then he's going to wake up. Now, why does she uncover his feet? Does anyone know? I've heard a lot of theories. I don't exactly know why she uncovers the feet. If it was me, it'd be very simple. If you uncovered my feet, I would get cold and I would wake up. So maybe it was just that simple. I don't know. But she uncovered Boaz's feet. Boaz woke up. Boaz smelled and saw a beautiful woman at his feet. And he said, awkward. And Ruth said, you're one of the people who's allowed to marry me. And I want you to so that you can take care of me. But all of this was a plan that Naomi had put together and then Ruth put into practice. There was a lot of action here. There was a lot of making sure that this was going to work. And, and, and they didn't actually know. Now, this step of doing is not easy, but Ruth stepped into it. She said, speaking to Naomi, I will do whatever you say. So she went to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Now, this is not an easy step. It requires a lot of courage. Because Ruth went there, she very well could have been rejected. She certainly could have been embarrassed. You know, there were other people around. It would, you know, it's very clear that Boaz didn't want anything to improper to happen. In fact, Ruth left before the sun came up so that no one would think anything. And the way that Boaz conducts himself in the next chapter, it's clear that he treated her with respect. But she could have been embarrassed. She could have been called out. She could have been rejected. But she had courage through that embarrassment. She had courage through that possible pain because she was set up to go and to do. And so we have these steps in our hope that are, that are required. And they're not easy. You know, if you're going to return, you have to humble yourself. And you have to say, I'm willing to admit I was wrong. If you're going to go, well, then you're going to have to trust. You're going to have to trust that you're going to be taken care of. And if you're going to do, you have to persevere. You have to have the courage to work through difficulty and work through pain and know that God is watching over you. But if we're honest, these are not huge steps. These are not earth-shattering, groundbreaking decisions that a person needs to make. Maybe return to God, for you that might be a total reorientation of your entire life. But I think for many of you, it's, it's more of just an alignment issue to say, I've wandered from God and I need to bring myself back into alignment. And then we're basically just saying you need to start to put these steps into motion. But for some reason... 
we don't really take small steps seriously. This is extremely common because we don't celebrate small steps. We celebrate huge moments. So if you're a sports fan, what do you celebrate? You celebrate touchdowns. You celebrate home runs. You celebrate goals occasionally if you watch soccer. You know, this the big moment. That's what you celebrate. That's what we're excited about. Same for the athletes on the field. I mean, they are pumped when the big moments come. But we don't celebrate a, a great pass that set up the next pass that set up the goal. We don't celebrate, you know, the sacrifice bunt that got someone on base. We don't celebrate a killer block that sprung a running back for this beautiful play. Because we're not drawn to small steps. Because they don't have the grandeur, they don't have the gravitas, they don't even have the interest. And so, so often we don't take these small steps. But when we're not willing to take the small steps that start to inaugurate hope, we're not actually moving towards hope, and you're not putting any verb in your noun, because otherwise you're just hoping and pining, I wish, I wish upon a star that I could have hope. And we have to be willing to walk into these small steps, because they're the, the building blocks that hope is built from. I want to ask Rob to come up. I want him to help me with this because there's, there's a piece of music that actually I think kind of demonstrates this thought a little bit. In 1928, a French composer named Maurice Ravel uh, had a commission to write a piece. And he had a similar thought. He thought, what is the smallest possible building block on which I can base an entire piece of music? So this is what he wrote. That's it. Ravel said, I wonder if we can base everything on that one small motif. That small, small step. What can happen from that small tap? And so for the entire piece, that is the only thing that the snare drum plays. And we start to realize that it's, it's the faithfulness in the small steps that builds our hope. But in a sense, we're also right. This is not enough to create hope. It's the beginning of hope, but it's not hope itself. And this is why. The key word for all of chapter 4, the verb of action here, is the word redeem. As in literally to buy, to redeem. And what's fascinating about redeem in chapter 4, it's there 11 times, is that Ruth did not redeem herself. Ruth and Naomi returned together. Then Ruth went. Ruth did. But Ruth didn't redeem. Because redemption is something that comes from outside of ourselves. Something much larger and it's beyond what we're able to do for ourselves. And in Ruth, the redeemer was Boaz. Now there's another cultural thing that's happening here that's important. Because in the ancient culture, family was all you had. You had nothing else. So not only were families, you know, kind of bound to each other, they were legally obligated to care for each other. Because if a family didn't take care of each other, they would die. And they would be a burden upon society. So families were instructed, both in the Old Testament and in the tradition that built on top of it, they were instructed to care for each other. And it was in a couple different ways. First of all, the land. If you, for some reason, could no longer afford your land... 
that would be a very shameful situation for you to be in that would mean that you have no children. It would mean that you have, you know, completely lost your faculties in some way and your land needed to be sold. Well, land was not supposed to leave families ever. So if they said, listen, if you have to sell your land, your nearest relative is the one who should buy it. You know, usually they were talking about a brother. So if for some reason you can't hold your land, your brother needs to buy it. Patriarchal culture, I know. Because the hope is someday they're going to sell it back to you. And in fact, they might even give it back to you because families are taking care of each other. And in the same way, if a woman did not have a son and her husband was dead, the next closest man in her family was supposed to give her a son because this is how she would be protected. It is how the family name would continue. It is how the land would be kept. And so he would marry her even if he already had a wife. He would marry her so that she could have a son, but it wouldn't be his son. That would be his brother's son. And it would get all of his brother's inheritance. So the man would marry this woman, care for her, care for her son, but it would never be his own son. I know having more than one wife to us is completely bizarro. I get that. But this is a totally different culture with different motivations. And this was called the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer, depending on the version of the Bible you're reading. And Boaz was one of Ruth's guardians and redeemers. He actually wasn't the closest one. There was one ahead of him in line. And it was both a privilege and a responsibility to be the guardian redeemer. The guardian redeemer would take on more land for a time before he gave it back. And it would be a great honor to do this for the family. So Boaz went to the other redeemer first and said, hey, do you want to redeem Elimelech's land? Oh, and by the way, that means marrying Ruth. The guardian redeemer said, no, I cannot redeem it. I might endanger my own estate. Why? He may have already had a wife. He may not have had the money. He doesn't say. But he tells to Boaz, you redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And then the highlight of chapter 4 is that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. That was the redemption of both Ruth and Naomi. Because now their family line would continue. And there was a son who was born who was then the, the highlight of their lives. And they were redeemed. Because we cannot redeem ourselves. Yes, we can and we should and we need to step into our own hope. But we cannot redeem ourselves. Because clearly and obviously, Boaz, as the redeemer of chapter 4, is to teach us that it's Jesus who is our redeemer. That he is the one who steps outside of time and space and has purchased us. Ephesians 1 says, We praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. We return, we go, we do, but He redeems. Because what happens is God takes the small steps of hope, of humility, of trust, of courage. And he says, I will redeem that. I will make something beautiful out of it that you can't even comprehend. And in the same way, that's what Ravel did. He started his piece with just the snare, nothing else. He took this small step. He said, all right, now what can we add to it? He just starts with a flute. It's very simple. He says, just listen to what I can do with this small step. And it starts to build. 
the the snare drum never brass percussion right it all starts with only the small step of faith if you're at all familiar with bolero it's not just an orchestral piece it's actually a ballet so from one motif springs orchestra costumes dancing So what step of hope do you need to consider today? Where in your life are you facing hopelessness? How many marriages today are struggling, having a hard time, but you're not taking that next step? You're not having the hard conversations. You're not seeking wise counsel. How many of you are stuck in a job that's sucking the life out of your soul, but you're not doing anything about it? You're pining for hope, but you're not stepping into any sort of resolution. How many of you are having health issues that could be greatly improved if you would change how you ate or your activity level? And you would like and prefer for things to change, but you're not stepping into hope. And deeper and more meaningful, how many of you are lost in a sea of hopelessness and you know that you've never returned home? Don't allow moments and opportunities to pass when you can truly consider how God might be calling you to step into hope. So I'm going to ask the band to come up and we're going to, you know, have uh, receive communion together and then we'll pray. And as we do, even as you're preparing your heart for communion and, and getting ready to, to come up here and enjoy this time, you know, ask God in prayer, how might he be calling you to step out into hope? How might he be encouraging you to, to make those steps necessary that then he can use and bless and grow into something beautiful? So let's pray. God, we praise you for the beauty of your word, that it challenges us and it inspires us to change and to grow. God, teach us to step into your hope. Don't allow us to be passive, but teach us to be active. Not that we can bring our hope, but that beautiful and holy togetherness that we have with you. That when we step out, you meet us there, and then you make that into something that we could never even imagine. Teach us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.